Welcome to Archival Fever. In each episode, your intrepid hosts take you into the archive in search of the wild, crazy, and bizarre. I'm Amy Viter. I'm Caroline Barta. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Your mailbox is suspiciously full, not with weekly junk mail, but misses from family and friends. Holiday greetings these days range from a photo card, the dreaded lengthy family newsletter, or a wintry Hallmark card. But you might not be as familiar with the holiday cards long associated with another kind of archive, a museum. Today, we consider the close relationship between art museums and the practice of commissioning artwork for commercial Christmas cards. In this episode, we take a jaunt to Victorian England, courtesy of the Victoria and Albert Museum, the V&A, to learn about the first Christmas card. Then we trace how Christmas cards gained traction in the United States, looking at the particular relationship between contemporary art and mass consumerism. Sending notes at the end of the calendar year isn't a new idea. Egyptians and Romans sent messages with New Year's gifts. That tradition continued through Tudor England. But in the 16th and 17th centuries in Europe, general interest in sending end-of-year greetings did decline. And this is largely attributed to the heightened religious sentiment and a focus on austerity during this time. Cards regained popularity in the 18th century, primarily as a way to announce visitors. These calling cards, sized much like contemporary business cards, typically included the holder's name and possibly their address. They were left at the homes of family and friends and served as a sign of social status. A century later, the popularity of calling cards inspired a new type of correspondence, the Christmas card. Historians are oddly unanimous about the first modern Christmas card. In 1843, Sir Henry Cole, a British administrator, found that he didn't have time to handwrite cards for each of his loved ones. This was prior to this point customary during the holiday season. So what he decided to do was commission a friend, John Calcutt Horsley, to design a card that he could have mass-produced and then colored by hand, thus saving him a lot of time. The image that was selected was printed on a piece of cardboard, which was about the size of a lady's calling card. His card read... A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you. And the card is a triptych, which means it's three different panels, and each panel has a separate portrait. The triptych form began in Christian artwork and can be seen in many churches, even today, especially over altars. In the card, the middle panel shows a happy family drinking wine, even a small child, which was rather scandalous for the Victorian period when temperance was encouraged. The family is flanked by portraits of the hungry and poor. This was a common dichotomy on holiday cards, giving thanks and remembering the less fortunate. When the holiday season was over, Cole discovered he had quite a few leftover cards, so he sold them for a shilling each. Although these cards were not a runaway success, they did signal the growing Christmas market. The same year that Cole sent his Christmas cards, Charles Dickens published A Christmas Carol. So it's no coincidence that an original copy of Cole's card is currently on display at the Dickens Museum in London. After all, Dickens is credited with making Christmas fashionable again. His Christmas stories reminded people that the holiday was about charity and kindness. Over the next decade, Christmas cards rapidly gained popularity. This can be attributed to technological advances. Printing methods improved, making it easier to reproduce images and text. Furthermore, the postal system had become more affordable and accessible. Advances in transportation and the introduction of the British penny postage stamp in 1840 made it quicker and cheaper to send mail. Across the pond, enterprising Americans capitalized on these innovations. 
Previously, most wealthy Americans had imported their greeting cards from England, but as early as the 1850s, Americans like R.H. Peace, an engraver and lithographer, created and distributed Christmas cards. By the end of the 19th century, American artists also saw Christmas cards as a viable source of income, like art for the masses. In 1875, Louis Prang, a Prussian immigrant living near Boston, revolutionized the Christmas card market by commissioning artists to design his cards. His first card featured a flower and read, Merry Christmas. Still life might seem like an odd choice now, but then the beautiful reproductions were popular. Prang used a chromolithography printing process to make high-quality reproductions. By 1880, he would sell over 5 million Christmas cards each year. He also added embellishments like velvet ribbons, crystals, and even satin fringe. Several examples of his cards are featured on our website. Prang viewed Christmas cards as affordable artwork. They were an opportunity for people of modest means to send something beautiful as a present. As time went on, he even enlarged the cards to 6x8 and 7x10 formats, which are now standard sizes, and added verses and decorative flourishes to make the artwork more meaningful. To reinforce their artistic merit, Prang even staged exhibitions of the cards at the American Art Gallery in New York City. The Boston Daily Globe praised Prang's cards as being, quote, all full of the joy and happiness of Christmas time and most artistically executed. Prang and co. do a real service to art and the attention they pay to making so beautiful and artistic these cards, such multitudes of which find their way all over the country and into the homes of every degree, end quote. To remain ahead of his competition, he devised a contest for artists to enter their work to be featured on his cards. People soon began collecting them. Artist Elizabeth Humphrey won Prang's Christmas card contest in 1884. Known as the Boston Prize Card, her rendition depicts a woman and two children standing before a curtain with a banner draped over it. The banner reads, We wish you all the best of Christmas wishes. The children are putting on a performance for their parents in the card. It is believed that the kids in this scene are modeled after Humphrey's own neighbors, Arthur Draper and Annie Knight, as well as Humphrey's adopted sister, Marjorie. Although Prang's cards featured unorthodox images, for example, children putting on performances for their parents or still life, he did keep British traditions of Christmas flora alive in his designs. For example, popular holiday plants included ivy and holly, and these were often tucked away in the corners of his cards. According to Penny Restad, a historian at the University of Texas, quote, ivy denoted constancy. Holly, whose sharply pointed leaves were said to frighten away witches and other bad spirits, was generally considered good luck. Santa often wore a sprig of it in his hat. At mid-century, many still regarded mistletoe, with its pagan and English connection, a curiosity at best, end quote. The tradition of kissing under the mistletoe actually dates back to the ancient Greek festival of Saturnalia. It took a while, but the uptight Victorians finally re-embraced this tradition. By the end of the 19th century, mistletoe was ubiquitous during the holidays and on their cards. Poinsettias also became a popular Christmas plant during this period, appearing in New York greenhouses in 1870 alongside fir trees. Known as Tannenbaum, decorated fir trees were introduced in England by German Prince Albert, who was Queen Victoria's husband. Two companies, what we now call American Greetings Corporation and Hallmark, seized on this growing interest in Christmas. Both of these companies were founded in the early 1900s. These card companies continued to expand the greeting card market. The Halls brothers, Joyce, Raleigh, and William, adapted a new card format, 4 by 6 inches, folded once, and stuffed into an envelope. This new format gave people a little bit more room to express their wishes, but it also limited them from writing pages and pages for a holiday card. 
According to the Wall Street Journal, over 1 billion cards were exchanged in America by the late 1920s. In fact, sales went from $10 million in 1917 to $55 million in 1927. As Smithsonian curator Mary Savick explains, quote, The sharing of cards was not simply modeled on the goodwill between friends and family, but rather situated one's social standing. Well-chosen cards communicated a family's happiness to acquaintances or demonstrated a business person's appreciation for the boss. A successful card would stand out from its neighbors on the fireplace mantle. Even through the economic hardship of the Great Depression, greeting card sales continued to increase. Cards were an affordable present and still a sign of friendship and mutual affection. They also continued to support the production of American art. In 1930, the New York Public Library hosted an exhibition to highlight the variety of techniques used by American artists to express good tidings, including etching, wood engraving, linoleum cutting, and lithography. Although not all cards rose to the level of great art, the exhibit's tone was celebratory. Four years later, the American Artists Group came together to sell original designs on holiday cards. By 1950, over 1.5 billion Christmas cards and over 25,000 designs had been exchanged in the United States. Today, you can visit two large collections of American Christmas cards in the Smithsonian Archives of American Art in Washington, D.C., as well as the Museum of Modern Art, MoMA, in New York City. In the Smithsonian's collection, for example, are Hallmark cards crafted by famous artists. Hallmark wanted cutting-edge artwork and solicited the likes of Grandma Moses, Andrew Wyeth, Saul Steinberg, and even Norman Rockwell, who designed 32 originals. Public figures also joined in on the fun. Former First Lady Jackie Kennedy painted two Hallmark cards to benefit the recently commissioned John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts. Eventually, Hallmark solicited bigger names. They went after Picasso, Paul Cezanne, Paul Gauguin, Vincent van Gogh, Georgia O'Keeffe, and even Salvador Dali. Here's a brief history of surrealist artist Salvador Dali and his surprising relationship with Hallmark. Born and raised in Catalonia, a region in Spain, Dali daydreamed through school and took evening art classes. He traveled to Paris and met Pablo Picasso in 1926. Shortly after, he failed out of school and decided to pursue art full-time. He partnered with Luis Bunuel to make an Andalusian dog. You might know it from a particularly disturbing scene involving a straight-edge razor in a woman's eye. The film earned praise from the Surrealists in Paris, a group with whom Dolly soon became associated. During World War II, Dolly moved to the United States with his wife. While there, he forged key working relationships with the likes of Walt Disney and Alfred Hitchcock. These unorthodox partnerships expanded his American audience. He even created a circular jigsaw puzzle for Springbook. In 1958, Hallmark courted Dali to design a series of Christmas cards. They offered him $15,000, a sum today of over $120,000, for 10 cards. He even negotiated with Hallmark that they could have no say on the subject, the medium, or even the deadline. His surrealist greeting cards proved too avant-garde for the average consumer. In one, a headless angel plays a lute, perhaps a little macabre, for Christmas tidings. In another, a Christmas tree is made out of mounted butterflies. However, it was his renditions of holy Christian figures that proved especially provocative. His 1959 nativity scene appears like an unfinished sketch or figure drawings done in an art studio. In the center are two figures cloaked in blue and red. They are surrounded by a lilac watercolor background. 
In addition to collecting Christmas cards by international artists, American museums actively commission cards from contemporary American artists like Alexander Calder. The same year that the Archives of American Art was founded, in 1954, the Museum of Modern Art started a Christmas card program at the urging of the museum's junior council, which was chaired by Mrs. John D. Rockefeller III. The Christmas cards were a way, quote, to bring together a group of younger people who have a common interest in the arts and a desire to see them fostered soundly and liberally in this country, end quote. The program invited artists to submit original cards or designs. The Council's Christmas Card Committee then selected from those submissions and chose several annually for reproduction and sale at the museum. A royalty on sales was paid to the artists, and the Council benefited from a percentage of the profits. Perhaps the most widely known holiday cards created during this period were designed by Robert Indiana. Indiana is considered one of the preeminent figures of American pop art. He is the self-proclaimed, quote, American painter of signs, end quote. According to his website, Indiana created a highly original body of work that explores American identity, personal history, and the power of abstraction and language, establishing an important legacy that resonates in the work of many contemporary artists who make the written word a central element of their oeuvre. Born Robert Clark in Indiana, Robert Indiana took his native state's name after moving to New York in 1954, a gesture that presaged his pop-inspired fascination with Americana, signage, and the power of ordinary words. In his Manhattan studio, Indiana made assemblages of scrap materials and found objects, using stencils to introduce words into his art. By the early 1960s, he was creating eye-popping paintings of texts, numbers, and symbols related to the hard-edge abstraction of the day. In 1965, MoMA commissioned Indiana to design a Christmas card. The result was called Love. The card featured capitalized red letters and Didone typeface. The letter L stacked over V and a tilted O stacked over E. However, this was not the first iteration of Indiana's card. The year prior, Indiana sent Dorothy Canning Miller, a curator at MoMA, a pencil rubbing of the design. Inside, he wrote, quote, My best, Bob, end quote. Miller enjoyed his personal card so much that she commissioned him to make a more colorful version for MoMA's Christmas card the following year. Indiana made the letters a bold red shade and filled in the gaps with vibrant green and blue. But you might recognize the card from the sculpture that it became. Today, most of the love sculptures retain the red-colored letters. You've probably seen people posing in front of the sculptures in New York, San Francisco, Philadelphia, or even Indianapolis. There are over 30 iterations of the love sculpture scattered around the United States. We hope you've enjoyed this audio love letter to the seasonal greeting card. From both of us, we wish you a wonderful holiday season. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. New episodes are available the 15th of every month. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Archival Fever and let us know about an archive you love, maintain, or think we should feature in the last five minutes of our show. Our show notes are available at archivalfever.com. Our music is by Yvonne Teo. Sound editing is by Jacob Weiss and his team at UT Liberal Arts Development Studio. Financial support by UT College of Liberal Arts. Thank you for listening.